morning. It's good to be with you. I love that song. It's good to know that we're not alone here this morning, isn't it? Especially when we go to talk through some of the things we've been talking through in this particular series called The Misuse of God. Because it's been a little heavy, right? I recognize that, but I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm glad some of these moments are happening. And I think it's because it's real. It happens around us. And there's moments where it's good for us as a church to have to wrestle through some of those things. So I say this sincerely when I say it's good to be with you here today, friends. And I'm glad we get to continue on here in week three. You know, years ago, I had the privilege of going to Rome. And while I was there, I I went to the Vatican, which is humongous and immense. And there's a bunch of things I don't, I can't tell you how many tapestries I saw. I don't remember most of them, but I do remember going into uh, the Sistine Chapel and seeing Michelangelo's work painted upon the ceiling, uh, infamous work called The Last Judgment. I don't know if you guys have ever had the privilege of seeing it, studied it or whatever. This thing's massive, humongous. Like it makes you sit there going, how did he do this? And there's so much detail. How long did he take? And all of this stuff. I walked in, I'm standing in the Sistine Chapel, big giant room painting on the ceiling, shoulder to shoulder, because this is pre-COVID. We're just packed in like sardines and there's different translators speaking in different languages, just telling you what's happening. And I go next to the English speaking translator as I'm staring at this and they, he draws my attention to the bottom right-hand corner, this tiny little section of this great, big, big painting. And I think I have a, a snapshot of what that is. Uh, there's this moment in the very bottom, right? Of all these different layers and things, there's this spot where there's an angry man with an oar. You see how it looks like he's about to hit everybody out of the boat. And then there's this spot where that looks like fiery kind of opened up. It's not a nice sunset, you realize, because the man with the snake and all the things. And so he pauses and he says, and it's at the bottom right hand of the corner of the painting, you'll notice a moment where people are being cast into judgment. He said, this painting occurred during the, the Protestant Reformation. And this was a message to the Protestants that if you leave the Holy Catholic Church, you will be condemned to the fires of hell forever. And as a Protestant person, I sat there just staring at the ceiling going, wow, that's a message, right? And I imagine what it would have been like to have been in that culture at that point in time hearing this or seeing this, it made me think about how for so much of history, there are big moments when God has been used as a weapon to create fear, right? And obedience. Another time, another place. I remember being 18 years old at Pima Community College. My freshman year, I took gen eds and things there and showed up to this US history class that was early, early, early in the morning, like right at the crack of dawn, it seemed like. Showed up to this US history class and I walk in On this particular day, the professor sitting at the front of the room, he's not addressing the class. He is staring at the front of the class along with everyone else in the class as we all watch a television with the news on it. Earlier that day, planes had been hijacked by terrorists and flown into, right? Diverted, as many of you know, and flown into buildings here in the United States, the most famous of which is the the Twin Towers right at the World Trade Center. And like, 25 minutes before my class had started, the first tower had collapsed. And we were all walking into class on this particular day with our eyes wide open, nobody really speaking, kind of looking at each other, wondering what was happening, wondering if we were under attack as a nation, wondering why this happened, wondering what this meant, all of these things. And we walked into class and everybody just sat down silently. Nobody said a word. We just watched the news for a while. And eventually my professor looks at us and he says, I think it'd be best if you all packed up your things and simply went home today. And he said, and if you're a person who prays, you should probably do that. And we got up and we left. I'll never forget that moment. On that particular day, almost 3,000 people died. And as a nation, for the first time, Americans felt really scared, 
felt a kind of vulnerability in a different way than perhaps they had felt, that we had felt in some time. People felt hurt. People felt angry. Everyone wanted to know what was happening. Everyone wanted answers. People wanted to know why this particular thing happened and what we were going to do. And then on September 13th, just two days later, two very prominent evangelical leaders went on national television in an interview with one another. And this is what they said. I'm going to read the following as a quote. The abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because God will not be mocked. And when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I really believe that the pagans, that's everyone who's not a Christian. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, the people for the American way, all the people that have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. And people got angry. Christians got angry. People who weren't in churches got angry because people were in the midst of hurt and grief and frustration and and just confusion. And to hear that, it made me realize, you see, friends, God still gets used as a weapon sometimes, doesn't he? A few days later, I sat at a table at Pima Community College waiting for my class to begin. I'm sitting at this picnic table. There's a 19-year-old woman sitting across the way from me. We're talking and she looks at me and she goes, Ryan, you like go to church. You believe in God, right? And I said, yeah. And she goes, you know, I actually stopped caring about God this last week. And I didn't understand where she was coming from at that particular moment. And I said, well, why? And her eyes flushed red. As she told me that she had an abortion the previous year. And she said there, I don't want to get into the details of why I had to have an abortion or not. She said, but I did. It's one of the hardest decisions that I'd ever made. And she said, and I just don't understand why God would would allow 3000 people or why he would use 3000 people to die in this way and cause a whole nation to just be in an uproar and fear and hurt and pain and all of this stuff because of the decision that I made a year ago. And I don't know what to do with any of that. And I said, that sounds really hard. And she looked at me angrily and she said, it is, you know, I chose to stop caring about God the moment I realized he stopped caring about me. It was a big moment. Because when God gets used as a weapon, sometimes it leaves lasting hurts, doesn't it? Sometimes it creates struggles and wounds and things that last for a very long time. Some of you know this more than you wish you did. Some of you have experienced this. Another time, another place. I sat at a Jerry Bob's having breakfast. Somebody had come up to me and said, Ryan, I have some questions about faith and I just want to talk to somebody about this. And you seem like a person maybe I'd want to talk to. Could we do this? And so I went to Jerry Bob's and we had breakfast and we started to talk about faith. And as I'm talking, I, I have this sense that this isn't going well. I keep having these moments where she rolls her eyes a little bit or she smirks or she laughs, you know, like where there's a little bit of cynicism or skepticism in the conversation. And I'm like, I'm clearly missing something here. This is not going well. I don't know what to do. And so I just paused and said, you know what? It seems like maybe you've had an experience with religion or something at some point in time that's impacting even this conversation. I don't know what it was for you, but what was that like? Is there something there? And she, for the first time, became a very honest, authentic and vulnerable human being. And she began to talk to me about the house that she'd grown up with. And she said she'd grown up with two very, very, very Christian parents. That's the way she described it. And she said that one of her strongest memories is she remembers a moment where her older sister came home after a curfew with alcohol on her breath. And her father had called her no more than a wicked prostitute who was making her bed in hell. 
And she watched her older sister burst into tears and run out of the room and lock herself in her room. And she stood there trying to make sense of what had happened and why would God do this and think of her this way or all these different things. And she just didn't know where to place that. And then she told me story after story after story of moments where God was used to condemn or to shame or to hate. And eventually she looked at me and she said, God was nothing more than a weapon my parents used to shame and guilt us into obeying them when they wanted us to and into doing what they wanted and into hating the same types of people that they hated. And I'm done with God. And then she got really weird and sad and she said, but I'm not done with God. (laughs) And that's why I wanted to talk with you. You know, one of the hardest moments I had with her on that particular day is she looked at me and she said, and Ryan, you go to a church. I need to know how is your church any different? It's a big moment yet again. You know, I share these stories with you because they're more common than we think, but also because I know there's some of you in this room that know what that moment is like. I find myself wondering how many of you know what it's like in your own life to find a moment where God was used as a weapon directed at you or somebody that you love. I mean, think about this. How many of you have ever had a moment where God was used at some point as a weapon? Maybe the person had an angry voice or a bullhorn of some kind. And that person began shouting and yelling at you that you were a sinner, that you were going to hell, that you were bad, that you were a hypocrite, that you were whatever those things were. I remember every day I'd walk by somebody on the streets of Chicago screaming and yelling at me when I lived there. Regardless of what I believed or what I'd done, it was just onslaught every single day. How many of you had God used by a parent at some point in time? to make you scared of a God that was always waiting to judge you if you made a mistake of any kind, like some weird combination of Santa Claus and the boogeyman, right? God was used as a thing to incite fear in you, a thing to make you line up. And there's a part of you that looked and found yourself going, I don't know if I want anything to do with this anymore. Maybe you had someone in your life tell you or tell someone that you loved that they are or you are an abomination to God, that God hates you that God has no room for you. And you found yourself suddenly sitting in that moment, backing away because how do you relate to or engage a God who has no room for you in his presence? What do you do? Like, what do you do with any of that? It gets really hard, doesn't it? Or maybe you just found yourself in a place in your life where some things had happened and you were hurting and having a hard time, whether you'd done something wrong or right, you were just struggling through this. And in a moment where you needed somebody to come into the midst of of where you were and be with you and love you in that place, instead you were met with a weaponized God, used to condemn you, used to judge you, used to put a hundred pounds of weight on your back so that you would feel guilt and shame because they don't like whatever you were doing or whatever you mistake you had made and they wanted you to know that. And you felt pinned in that moment and you didn't know what to do. See, if you're wondering why we're talking about this idea of the misuse of God and on this particular day, talking about when God gets misused as a weapon, the reason why we're talking about it is because there is not a week that goes by in this particular church where somebody comes to talk with me or Glenn or somebody about someone about themselves or someone they know being at the other end of a weaponized God facing a moment where they experienced all of these things. And I can't tell you how many times in a given week, in a given month, we find ourselves talking with people who say, I I am on my way out of church. My foot is out the door and I just don't feel like there's a place left in this thing for me anymore. And there's so much hurt and there's so much pain and it's so complicated and I don't know what to do. We're talking about this on this particular day because it's in this room because it's real, because it's each of us, whether this impacts you personally or not, it's, 
It belongs to each of us in some weird way, shape, or form because so often God seems to get misused as a weapon. And my hope in talking about all of this is whether you're a person who says, well, you know, there've been moments in life where I've, I've used God as a weapon or maybe you're a person who says there's been moments in my life where God has been used as a weapon against me. Either way, whichever side of the equation you find yourself on, my hope for you is the same. I hope you come to see and know that God is not a weapon to be used against you, but that God wants instead to love you right where you are. And I want you to know that. I want you to hear that this morning in an overt way. And so today, as we talk through this topic, here's how we're gonna go about it. I'm gonna, I wanna teach through three passages. The first passage is actually the story of Noah in Genesis chapter six uh, through nine. And we're gonna talk about that. If you're a person who at times has said, I think maybe we should use God as a weapon or you've, you've kind of engaged in that, this passage we're gonna work through is for you. If you're a person who says, you know what, God has been weaponized against me and I don't know what to do with that. I wanna to point to a moment in John chapter eight where a woman is caught in adultery because there's something Jesus does in that that's so for you. And I want you to see this thing. And for all of us, I wanna to point to a moment where Christ is upon the cross and he says some words that are so striking that they kind of settle it once and for all here this morning, friends. That's the path that we're gonna walk on as we talk about this. So let's start with Genesis and the story of Noah and the ark. Now, a lot of people grew up hearing Noah as a children's story, right? Where there's like pictures or something. Every time I talk about Noah and an ark, there's like a flannel graph and counting animals and all these different things. That's what I think of. If you don't know what a flannel graph is, congratulations. Uh, it's wonderful. Um, but, but yeah, that's what I think of. But here's the thing. It's in the very first chapters of Genesis. It starts at Genesis chapter six. That's the very first book in your Bible. Now, most of those stories that are in the first several chapters of Genesis, they would have been being passed down through oral tradition for a very long time with the Israelite people. These would have been the stories that you tell to your kids and to their kids and to, to family members and things, uh, talking about life's big questions and how we wrestle through this stuff. And we would have been sharing those pieces. And the story of Noah at this particular moment, it answers one very big question that anyone who ever thinks about God long enough and critically enough comes to ask themselves or others. It's one really big question. And that question is this, why doesn't God just do away with all the evil or the bad in this world? Have you ever had that question before in a very honest way? Why doesn't God just change this? You ever watch a catastrophe or news or things or bad stuff or bad moments happen? And you're like, if there's a God, why doesn't he just deal with all that? Why doesn't he take that all away? Why doesn't he reset it? Why doesn't he make the world good and get rid of the bad? In some ways it asks the question, why doesn't God actually become that weapon against evil that wipes it all out and starts the thing over with the good? And the story of Noah provides each of us a profound answer that is straightforward, that simply says, because it doesn't work. And I wanna unpack that here this morning. Noah, Genesis chapter six, beginning at verse 11, it says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how the corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm gonna put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. In just six short chapters, from the beginning of Genesis. In fact, the fall of man, the creation of man and all that fall of man happens in Genesis chapter three. So really in just three chapters from that moment, all of a sudden it goes from like, yeah, there's like two people living in the garden of Eden to now the world is filled with violence and people are corrupt and this whole thing starts to spiral out of control. God looks at the world and says, it's brimming over with a kind of corruption and violence and I'm gonna wipe the slate clean. All the corruption, all the evil, everything's gonna be washed away, except for one guy and his family. Genesis chapter six, verse eight says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Okay, so not every person's corrupt. There's like this righteous man who's blameless and his family seems like a good person to start creation 2.0 over again with and give this a fair shake. Genesis chapter six, verse 17. God says, I'm gonna bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breadth of life in it, everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark, which is like a large boat. You and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. This is set up like a profound case study. It, it really is. This whole story is set up like a case study where it's like, okay, there's all this evil. There's all this corruption. Why doesn't God just take care of it? Okay, he's going to send a flood. He's going to wipe that away. And we're going to start it all back over where everything is good, right? A good man, a righteous man, blameless with his family and all the animals and all the things in creation 2.0. This is the system upgrade. All the bugs have been worked out. Right? Let's do this thing. And that's kind of the way this story is written, the way this story is told. And so the earth is flooded for 40 days and 40 nights. Genesis chapter seven, verse 23 says, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Creation 2.0 begins. Finally, goodness gets a fair shake. Finally, everything gets like a fresh start. And all the good can just be good and none of the bad can be there and it's all taken care of, right? Wrong. That's the crazy thing about this story. It's a hard reset type of moment, but that's not what actually happens. You know what happens right after the story of Noah, right after this moment? Noah wakes up, realizes that he feels ashamed because he thinks his younger son has shamed him in a moment. And so he turns and he curses his younger son against his brothers. And the curse that he says to his younger son is you shall forever be the slave now of your brothers. Can we just pause? That's not good. That's not a great moment. Do you know what that does? That actually divides brother against brother. This creates a kind of tension and division between them where these generations of people as their descendants go begin killing each other and fighting with each other. And what do you see when the same family coming right off of this moment? Violence and bloodshed and all the same junk all over again. You see the exact same thing to begin to play out. What happened to creation 2.0? What happened to why doesn't God just take care of it? The story of Noah answers this question for us. If God's chief desire, if the chief desire of his heart, if what he wanted most was to remove all of the bad from this world, he'd need to kill people. Like we just all need to go away. Because you know this, I know this, contained within every human being is the capacity to do beautiful things and the capacity to do a great harm. It's in you, it's in me. He'd have to eliminate that. He'd also have eliminated Satan by now. Some of you are like, but doesn't, isn't that what God's really after? Well, if it is, then the most all-powerful being in the universe has been doing it wrong, if you think about it. Do I think he wants more good? Yes. Do I think he's not a fan of more bad? Well, sure. I don't think God's like, you know, I'm fine with evil. It is what it is. No, but what is the chief desire of his heart, friends? What's the chief desire of his heart? We get a window into some of this. Genesis chapter nine, verse 12. It says, and God said, this is after the flood is over. And he addresses Noah and his family. He says, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come, for everybody, for all time. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I wanna draw attention where it says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me 
and the earth. Now our English translations do something weird here that they, and I don't know why they leave this out. I don't know why they don't highlight this sincerely. But you know, in ancient Hebrew culture, they did not have just a singular word for rainbow, like the colored thing that exists after, you know, the rain that we all see, the big arc that exists up there. Like they didn't, didn't have a singular word for that. In fact, the word that they used to describe what a rainbow was, was actually the word for war bow as in a bow you take to battle, a war bow. And so the word that's used in the Hebrew here is actually the word for war bow. And I think this would have drawn a direct like picture in the heads of any ancient hearers who heard and saw this particular thing. When God says, I've hung my rainbow in the clouds that you would know that I'm never gonna flood the earth. I'm never gonna wipe the slate again in the same type of way. What he's saying is like a commander that's come home from war, like a soldier who is no longer in need of this thing. I take the bow and I hang it on the mantle. I mount it on the wall. I don't need this anymore. It becomes a profound message that God has hung his war bow in the clouds. It's not in his hand. And all it's saying, all this moment is saying is, God is not at war with you. God is not at war with you. And that is a really, really big deal because the chief desire of God is what? To have a relationship of love and trust with humanity, not just to eradicate all of the bad or he would go about this very, very differently. He has set his rainbow in the clouds. God is not at war with you. When God is used, this is important. When God is used as a weapon by others against you, I just want you to remember, God is not at war with you. In the moments that you find yourself wanting to use God as a weapon against others, I want you to remember, God is not at war with them. The rainbow we see after a storm is there to remind us that God is not at war with us. God has hung his war bow in the clouds. He has no use of it. That question has been answered. When someone uses God to wound you, here's the truth, they did that. That actually happens. But God is not at war with you. When someone uses God to make you fear judgment, make you wither and shrink, they did that and it might feel that, I just need you to know God is not at war with you. When someone uses God as a way to justify hating you, well, that speaks more of their own fears and struggles than it does of God. Why? Because God is not at war with you. At the core of God's heart is not the chief desire to eradicate all evil. At the core of God's heart, I say this again, is to establish a relationship of love and trust with the human beings he created whom he loves already. And you know what you see right after Noah? You see God go to a man named Abraham and say, Abraham, I wanna start a relationship with you, a special kind of relationship that I wanna bless you and your descendants. And through your descendants, that you will become a blessing to the entire world. This is that relationship. I want it to be a model for others of love and trust. This is what God is after. And he goes and engages this. And then time goes by, friends. And all of a sudden, years and years, hundreds and hundreds of years, there's a descendant of Abraham who's born into this world. He's born to a woman named Mary who's betrothed to a man named Joseph and they named him Jesus Christ. They named him Jesus, son of Nazareth, right? And this amazing thing happens is the son of God, right? The son of God who is fully God is living and dwelling among us as one of us. It's like full 3D, it's high death. Like you can see all the detail. 
and follow his life in this profound way. And this interesting thing happens as we watch the son of God begin to live his life that I think is a little new or a little different. You know what's crazy about it? This interesting thing, it's weird. Is as Jesus, the son of God, begins to live his life, they begin, religious leaders begin to use God as a weapon against God. They begin to use God as a weapon against the the son of God. And this unfolds, this brings us to our second passage here for the morning. It's John chapter eight. John chapter eight. In In John chapter eight, Jesus is standing in a temple in the midst of Jerusalem. The temples where you went to learn about God. The temples where people gathered to worship God and all those different things. I mean, this is a sacred type of a place and Jesus is teaching inside the temple and all of these people, these crowds have gathered around to hear what Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching them, a whole commotion begins to start as, as these religious leaders, they were known as the scribes and the Pharisees. We talked a little bit about them last week. These were like the religious leaders of the religious leaders right? These were respected people. These, were, these people had knowledge, like they had the Bible on lock. They knew all of the things. They come dragging a woman in who had been caught in adultery and they drag her in before Jesus in front of this crowd of people. And there she is. And now she's there awaiting judgment. And this is where we find ourselves. John chapter eight says, um, teacher, this woman has been, this is the religious leader speaking to Jesus. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, as in, in the Bible, as in, in the scriptures, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to him, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Think of this. Isn't this a crazy situation? They have this moment where Religious leaders are coming to Jesus, who is in fact also a teacher and religious leader, and they're trying to trip him up. The reason why is because as Jesus walked through his life, as Jesus taught and led, he did something that other religious people at the time just simply were not doing. And it's this, he loved sinner and saint alike. So if you were the person that everyone else in religion seemed to cast out or try to avoid, for whatever reason, Jesus would go to you and he'd actually acknowledge you. He would have dinner with you. He would enter into relationship with you. He sat and ate with tax collectors. These were people that stole from their own brethren. Like they, were, they weren't just thieves. They were thieves who stole from their own family. These were the lowest of the low in terms of how people regarded them. He, he sat and talked with people who had ailments, people who were demon-possessed, people that other people thought God must be judging or punishing because of the way that their life looked. He, he did so many different things And he went and he loved all of these different people and he proclaims as he went that God loves them and wants to have relationship with them. And then Jesus did the craziest thing. Do you know what he did? He loved them and he had relationship with them. And the religious leaders at the time didn't know what to do with it. And they looked at him and they're like, we got to stop this whole thing. He's like turning the tables upside down. It seems like he's disobeying all of our laws and commandments. He's not taking the Bible seriously. And so they find a woman caught in adultery. That's a terrible situation. They drag her out. Notice just her, not the man with her, just her. Drag her out, drag her into the temple to make a public spectacle of her and of Jesus. And then they quote the Bible to the son of God and say, do you agree with this? Or are you going to reject it? Because if Jesus says, well, no, I agree with the law that that's what it says. Well, then every follower who surrounded themselves around Jesus, who's been following him, whose hearts have been captivated, are gonna be like, he's a hypocrite. See, he doesn't love us. See, there is judgment and condemnation. See, it's no different than everybody else. But if he says, well, no, I don't. Well, then he's not following the law. And now they're 
they as the religious leaders are gonna say, you're in the temple and they're gonna cut the legs out from under him and then they're gonna chastise and chase him. Do you see? He's stuck. What does he do? This is Jesus' response. It says, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. We should emphasize this a certain way. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Meaning, what he's saying here is before you weaponize God to crush this woman, take a look at your own heart first. What, are you different? Before you become the judge of sin, is there not sin in your life too? What makes you different? Before you think this other person is vile or disgusting or that you're better than them, what makes you any better than them? Why do you regard yourself as more? Take a look at yourself first. You aren't God, so what gives you the right to hurl stones in judgment at this particular moment? John chapter eight, verse nine. But when they heard this, they, being all the religious leaders in the crowd, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And you might be sitting here going, man, that's a beautiful moment. Everybody backs away and now it's just Jesus and her and she has to feel so relieved. Not yet, not yet. Do you know why? Sure, all the people who drug her in holding stones have, have all backed away because, well, none of them were comfortable with the thing of like, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. So they all just left, but she's still stuck there in judgment, waiting to hear what Jesus is going to decree, what Jesus is actually going to say to her. She's still in that moment right now. It's a hard moment to be in, you guys. What's he gonna do? She looks around and she says, because he had said, who's there to condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, and I don't want you to miss this, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There are a couple times when I have taught through this or read through this with some other people that people look at me and be like, see, he says, go and sin no more. That's him at that moment still judging her and still saying, but, but cut it out and stop doing this. And there's just a part of me, if I'm really honest with you, that wants to ask you, do you really think that Jesus turned from his compassionate stance in the beginning of this to all of a sudden was like, now that nobody's here and it's just me and you, let me lay the smack down. Where he's like, you're about to get the dark side of Jesus. Like, no, what are you talking about? What's happening in this moment? Here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus know, knows that full well that she knows that there is hurt and betrayal and deceit in her actions, that she knows that there is consequence and struggle that will accompany her behavior. And what he is doing is he's looking at her saying, you have a second chance. Don't go back to the same life that you just walked away from. Don't go back to it. Move forward. Move forward in your life. And if you've tuned out at some point, tune in because this next moment is significant. I want you to hear this. The religious people of the day, let's just summarize. The religious people of the day have caught a woman in the act of adultery. Now, let us be clear. There is no moral case to be made in this particular instance that adultery was a good thing. There isn't. There's no moral case in this particular instance or in most instances for that matter. I can't, I can't think of an exception. Where you would look and say, you know what, when you have a committed relationship to somebody else to, to lie and betray them and to hurt them is good, right? Like most of us aren't gonna stand up and be like, well, actually, you're gonna, get, you're gonna sit back down real fast, I promise you. So 
There's not really like a moral ground for this person to stand on at this particular moment. That's like that decision was okay and it was good. So, so consider this, the religious people of the day have caught a woman in the act of adultery, caught her in the act and there's no argument to be made for this. So they have caught her having done something that was, and I quote, bad, not okay, right? Wrong. And so now they hold trial to condemn her. They hold a Bible to judge her with and they hold stones with which, with which to crush her. And, they, and she stands before the son of God. And I need, you to, I need you to just ponder this for two seconds. God in the flesh, right? Is Jesus fully God? Yes. She stands for the son of God who is fully God in that moment. And he's asked what he thinks of this situation of whether he would condemn her or not. And Jesus looks at her, do not miss this. And he says, I don't condemn you. Let that sink in for two seconds. I don't condemn you. He doesn't say it's fine. Everything's fine. Always fine. Let's just like pretend everything's good. No, there's gonna be a bunch of natural consequences. This is a hard moment. She's been publicly shamed. This is a whole host of things at this particular moment. It's not fine. This is an avoidance, right? But she stood before God. She stood before the one in whose name you and I pray, having done something wrong. And he looks at her and what's he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Do you feel that? Wrestle with that for two seconds. Some time ago, a woman had wanted to meet with me because she felt like every time she walked in this building, she became very anxious and she was scared she was going to get struck by lightning. This happens from time to time, believe it or not, it's not the first time. I always want to rationally answer that and be like, oh, you're indoors and God's not Zeus, you're good. Like, you're gonna be fine. Do you know what I mean? This is not how that works. But I know that's not what anybody's caring about or asking in those moments. She began to tell me her story. She'd been married for about a decade and in her marriage, there was abuse, both physical and verbal. And she dealt with it for some time. She made herself a promise at one point that, this, that if this ever impacted her kids, she'd draw the line and she'd be done. She'd struggle to get out of this thing for herself. But she said, if this ever impacts my kids, I'm done. And sure enough, one night they get in an argument and he hits her. And one of her two sons comes running over to try to protect mom. And then the son gets hit as well. And she says, that's it, I'm done, I'm out. And she begins to take steps after that particular moment to file for divorce and to move through this. And her whole life turns upside down and she loses so much support systems and things. And this becomes a really complicated, really hard time for her. She doesn't know where to turn to because she feels alone. And so she reaches out to a church, the church that she was going to. And she schedules a meeting with the senior pastor who agrees to meet with her. And he sits down and she says, you know, this is what I'm going through and I feel alone. And I just need a connection or community. I just, I need something. I'm having a very hard time. And he looks at her and says, you know, unfortunately you did not have biblical grounds for divorce because your husband did not cheat on you. So it is you who is currently living in sin that God will judge. And so he told her, do the right thing and go home to your husband. And she said, I'm done with this church. She walked away and she went to meet with, this was not this church, by the way. She went and walked to another pastor at a different church because she still needed something. She wasn't done trying, which by the way, takes an immense amount of courage when you've had that as your first moment, your first meeting with a pastor to go form a second one with somebody else. Like that's a lot. She goes and schedules a meeting with another pastor. He actually tells her something different. He tells her, no, we would love to have you be a part of our congregation, but you did not have biblical grounds for divorce. And so because of that, 
Anytime, if you were to engage in a relationship with anybody, you would be committing adultery and you would be making them an adulterer. And so I need you to just make a promise or agreement that you will not have a relationship with anybody while you attend this church. And she said, yes. And she started to attend the church. And like a month and a half in, a guy liked her. A guy thought she was great. And he went and asked her out for coffee. And she thought, I'm about to make this person an adulterer because I'm damaged and this is bad and I don't know what to do. And so she fled. She left the church because she felt like that wasn't a safe place. And she felt like there was no space or room in any church for her ever. And then she came here randomly years and years later because she was done with the whole thing. And she said, I just want to talk with you because I'm so scared every time I walk in this building, am I allowed to be in your service, the church service? I thought she was joking. She wasn't. And my heart broke for her. It did my heart. You know why my heart broke for her? Is because this woman had a very difficult time in a marriage where there was verbal and physical abuse. And then she went to a church and encountered spiritual abuse, not once, but twice, friends. And those wounds stick. Anyone in here who's ever been a part of those moments, anyone in here who's ever had those types of things happen, anybody in here who's ever had God turned as a weapon against them, those wounds run deep and you start to go, I don't know if there's space for me with God or maybe I don't have space in my heart for that anymore. And the trust just begins to erode and people begin to defend and divide. And it is so hard. My heart just broke. And I got to look at her And I got to tell her sitting in my office, I do not have even one ounce of condemnation that I could direct at you. I don't even know how to spell the word in this particular context. And just just to let you know, I believe that if Jesus were sitting in here physically in a chair next to you and you were talking directly to him, I believe he would look right back at you and say, neither do I condemn you. Because what God wants most is not to be used as a weapon against you to fall in line, but to have a loving relationship of love and of trust as you walk in faith with him. He wants you, actually you. And you know, I looked at her and I said, in fact, it took a lot of courage and a lot of strength to be able to break a cycle of abuse. And you didn't just love yourself in that moment. You loved your children and that's profound. You are not weak. You are not broken. You are resilient because you have overcome what many people struggle to face. There's a power in you. And I think God can use that and is using that. And I'm just proud to have sat here in this particular conversation with you. And I got to do something unique. I got to say, you know what? I know that you've encountered a God who looks like this. I want to invite you to meet a different God. I know that's a weird way to talk about it, but it felt like we were describing two completely different things at this particular point. I said, I wanna introduce you to a God who wants to love you right where you are. I wanna introduce you to a Jesus Christ who says, neither do I condemn you. I wanna introduce you to a God who says, there is nothing in this world that will cause me to forsake you or to separate from you. There's nothing. I wanna introduce you to a God who holds you as close as you wanna hold him. Who's for you, who has space for you, who loves you right where you are as you are. And then she became enfolded into this church. She began a relationship with Jesus like it was the first time and this church loved her. You guys loved her in amazing ways that began to create a kind of healing in her life. And I'm thankful for you because I just want to say that shouldn't happen. I don't, it shouldn't. And can I just say, if, if if there's some of you in this room 
that are here and you say, you know what, there have been moments in my life where God was weaponized against me and I've so struggled with that or you're hurt by that or you carry this. I can't undo the past. I can't begin to understand what it is you've walked through, but as a leader of a church, as a leader in a church, can I just look at you and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that was your experience. I'm sorry that that's what you walked through. And I think as churches, we can do better. God is not a weapon to be wielded against us. He wants to meet and love us right where we are, friends. He does. And he wants to meet you. You know the craziest thing about Christianity? Crazy, there's some things we just kind of know about Christianity. We're like, okay, so Jesus died on the cross and he, he rose again and he died for the forgiveness of sins. So in Christ, there's forgiveness. And, and in churches, they talk a lot about grace. There's this kind of grace for your life through Jesus Christ. And that's, that's beautiful. There's this profound way that Jesus loves us. It's the unconditional love of God. And, and we know all of these things in Christianity. Do you know what we forget? Do you know what we in churches forget more often than not? We forget that the reason people sought to hang Christ on a cross in the first place was because religious people had weaponized God against Jesus. We forget the whole course of action. We forget that whole thing because it's a tendency in us. It's easy to do. People quoted verses and they shouted insults at Jesus and they decided to kill an innocent man. At one point, a public official who wasn't a Christian of any kind looks and he goes, I think this is an innocent guy. Surely like we can turn him over or whatever. And they say, no, release a murderer to us. Release someone else. We want this person dead. That's the kind of hatred that began to flow out of a group of religious people looking at Jesus in this particular moment. And what's crazy about the crucifixion, friends, what's crazy about the crucifixion is in the moment where Jesus is hanging upon the cross, that is the precise moment that you would look where where God has been so weaponized against the very son of God that you would think Jesus, as the fullness of God would look and go, okay, you want to weaponize God against me? I will show you what a real weapon looks like. You would think that as Jesus hangs upon a cross and is mocked and beaten and people cast lots, which is essentially gambling for his garments in front of him, you would think that as all that's occurring goes, you want to condemn and humiliate me? Allow me to show you what real condemnation looks like. But what does he do? When he hangs upon the cross, staring at just the awfulness of all of that, what does Jesus do? Luke chapter 23. This is our final passage for the morning is this. Verse 33, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, and this is to the people who are a part of this, who are gathered there, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you have any question in your head of whether God's chief desire is to be used as a weapon, (laughs) let Christ's voice answer that question for you right now. What does he say? He looks at the people accusing him. He looks at the people condemning him. He looks at the people who have just nailed nails through his hands and feet and hung him to die in a torturous way. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The heart of God is not to be used as a weapon against you, but to love you as you are where you are, friends. He loves you. To those who crucified and shouted insults at him. The heart of God is to love people right where they are, as they are. To those who thought they had no place in religion, that God had no space in his heart and his kingdom for them. His heart was to love them as they were, where they were. To those who came with shame and regret and mistakes and struggles or sin, he loved them right where they were, as they were. And the same is true for you.
I want you to hear me. The same is true for you. If you have had religion used as a weapon, if you've had God used as a weapon, I hear that. And I don't, I don't devalidate any of that. I just want you to hear the heart of God is this. The same is true for you. If you have had God used as a weapon in your life, God wants to meet you where you are, love you as you are in this place. His heart is not to say, I condemn you, for there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. If you are a person who looks at your own life and you go, I think if I'm honest, I've used God as a weapon against others in different moments. Jesus loves you. The heart of God is to love you where you are as you are right now. Come meet a different God. Come meet a different kind of Jesus who loves you and loves the person that you formerly hated. Come experience it. If you're a person who finds yourself in moments where God has been used to condemn you over and over again and you've been pinned under the weight of it, allow Jesus to lift the weight off of your back as he pulls you close in love. His chief desire is not to pin you down. It's to love you as you are where you are, friends. If you've been wounded by religion, I want you to meet a love that heals found in Jesus who sees you and knows you and absolutely loves you. And lastly, if you've come to believe that you are bad or condemned, because that's all the messaging religion has had for you over the years, I wanna invite you to encounter Jesus, to begin a relationship with, with this Jesus who loves you, who looks at you and calls you his brothers, calls you his sisters, calls you his sons adopted into the very family of God and says, there's plenty of space at my table for you. This is the heart of a church, friends. And so can I just say as a church, can we remember this? In the next moment where you find your hands being clenched and you wanna wield a Bible like a hammer, in the next moment you find something that you disagree with and you want to use God as an excuse to hate whatever's standing in front of you, will you remember this and hold this dear for there is something far deeper that God is after, far deeper that God cares about and it's to love you and those around you where they are as they are. It is the good news, friends, and it is for you because Christ is for you. I want to invite you this morning to begin a relationship if you haven't. Or maybe you're like, I've had a relationship. I don't want that anymore. I hear that. I would love to invite you to begin a relationship with a new Jesus. I would love to invite you to begin a relationship, not with the person in your past that condemned you, but with a God who honestly wants to love you here and now in this place. If you don't know what that's like, I so want to invite you to an experience of what it is to be loved unconditionally. If you've never experienced this in your life before, I want you to know that no matter what you face in this world, that God is for you and will not abandon you. And he wants to love you forward here and now. And all you have to do is just put your faith and trust in Jesus. He already has his faith and trust in you, believe it or not. He's with you. He loves you. You're treasure to him. And maybe you've never taken that step before. Or, you know, maybe in your honesty of honesty, you feel like you took a step at one point to love a God that now you look and you're like, I don't think that was God. I wanna invite you to take a step into a new kind of relationship with me this morning. And so all of us, what I'd love to do is just invite you to pray with me. That's all we're gonna do. There's no magic words to this prayer. It's not like there's some special trick. And if you say these special things, it's just a sincere moment to be able to express something to God. And so if you've never started that relationship before, I wanna invite you to the opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? Can we all bow our heads? God, I thank you, we thank you that you love us. I thank you that you love us where we are, as we are. And so right now we open our hearts to you. 
We open our lives to you. Love us. Love us that we might love you in the fullness of your love. Show us what unconditional love looks like, God. God, we wanna have a relationship with you. So walk with us. Guide us in the moments that we don't know where to go. Hold our feet steady in the places where our feet wanna slip and anchor us in your goodness and in your grace and in your love. God, we want a relationship with you this morning through Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you took that step for the first... <laughs> if you took that step for the first time today, we're not trying to make a spectacle or anything of you. I just want you to know we love you and are proud of you and are happy that you took that step and made that decision. And we'd love to walk this out with you. In fact, that's even part of why I invited Seth to to come out here with us. Yeah, again, we're, we're just, we're grateful that you all are here with us today. And if you took that step, we're super grateful you're here and, and know that you're not walking that alone. All of us are here walking that alongside you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things we're asking is, uh, everyone got a card, hopefully when they walked in today, if you did take that step into uh, in it, walking into a relationship with Jesus, could you fill that card out for us? It, there's a place for signature. Uh, and if your signature is like mine, it's not readable. So put a, like a name there that we can read. Uh, and then in addition to that, a way that we can contact you so that we can reach out. And again, just let you know that we're walking this path with you, uh, be able to send you a Bible or, or invite you to some of the stuff that we have going on around here. Yeah, if you made that choice today, that's not a small thing. And so we just wanna make sure you don't have to do that alone and that there's people to actually come alongside you and love you right where you are. And one of the other things is, uh, is because we, we wanna be able to continue taking that step with you and walking that, that road with you, uh, I wanna personally invite you to something. I, I teach a class around here uh, called Discover Cassis. And if you've been here during this series that we've been doing, The Misuse of God, you may have been hearing things and, and kind of sensing something about this church that, that this place is a little bit different than other places you've been. This is place speaks about God a little bit differently than maybe you've heard before. And I wanna invite you to, to join us in to, and to explore why it is that we do that, what it is that, that we've encountered about God that, that leads us to talking about him and experiencing him the way that we do. And so we have our Discover Cassis class. It's a three-week class. It's going to start on Sunday, February 5th. It'll be during the 11 o'clock service. And it's just, I get to teach it. And we just get to kind of explore and walk through all of that, some of our deepest values uh, and, and beliefs with that. And there's so, no quizzes. There's no homework. There's no like prerequisites. It's just come and be. Just, yeah, just come yeah. and be. And, and yeah. if you have questions, ask questions. That's what we love about it. If you want to sign up on the back of the card that you just got uh, that we talked about, there's the Discover Cassis part. You can go to our website. We do ask that you sign up just because we get snacks and I don't want to run out. So I want to make sure we have enough, you know, Oreos for everyone. The important things, right? Exactly. Oreos and Fritos for everyone. Uh, so I don't know why I said Fritos. Um, <laughs> no one likes Fritos. I love Fritos. <laughs> okay. Sorry if I offended anybody. <laughs> so, Fritos are Keep crazy. going. Anyways, uh, <laughs> Lastly, Ryan and I would love to meet you uh, if you took that step today. And we'll be right over here at these tables with some of those fine folks over there. And just come on over and say hello and, uh, and let's meet you. And then if you did fill this out, there are some baskets as you walk out of the auditorium and back there. You can just drop them right in that basket and we'll reach out to you. And if for whatever reason you want prayer this morning, there's some wonderful people who would love to meet you, love to pray with you here. It's been good to be with you, friends. We'll see you soon.